Radical Radio Collective. And you're on the Jeff and Dave show on the Radical Radio Collective today here on Eco Radio. Good afternoon, listeners. And a packed show, mostly about uh, accommodation models. We'll be speaking to Andrew McLean about land ownership for communal housing. We'll hear from Alet Nalda, who's going to talk about life in a tiny house, and Kel O'Neill about the on-the-ground reality of trying to live uh, communally. Now, on the theme of um, accommodation and different living models, we have Andrew McLean on the phone. Andrew, are you there? I am. I am. Go on, yeah, thanks. Excellent. Um, now, you're in the studio with uh, Dave here, Andrew. We're talking about your uh, presentation this morning on different um, land ownership models. You basically looked at four models where the land is not owned, where it's under collective stewardship, where it's collectively yep. owned, or where it's privately owned. Is that Have I got it right? That's correct, yes. So we're, I, I um, started Eco Villages Australia and we looked, you know, the very first question when, you know, we've got, we've got a housing crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to w- work out a way of getting on the land and, uh, and it's very difficult these days. So um, generally the first question you've got to own, answer is who owns the land? So this question is really, really upfront you know, when, when you start. And, and normally we, we don't even, most people don't even ask that question. It's you want to live somewhere in Australia, you've got to buy or you've got to rent. And we're sort of going the third way, you know, the, the collective stewardship way. But, but let's talk about those other four, other four models. So you rated them all using five criteria, whether they were ethical, the um, term of the ownership, how close yeah. it made the community, uh, yeah. time frame and budget. And yeah. of those, uh, you thought the collectively owned land performed worst and collective stewardship uh, performed yeah. best. Could you just sort of talk about the difference between the models and what's great about collective stewardship? Yeah, sure. Um, so, well, I mean, let's start with um, with uh, not owned. I mean, I, I, I asked the question, do we even have to own land? And, you know, and I know plenty of people on um, on squats or they've got... Um, my son lives in a tiny house, living in the back of the backyard of his mate's place. He doesn't own the land. It's a great relationship they have. It's a great solution. Um, but not owning land is actually, you know, quite an ethical, you know, an ethical um, stance. We we basically, um, you know, we 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 have we don't we don't have, in some ways have a uh, housing housing issue in Australia. We've got somewhere between eight and fourteen million spare bedrooms any given night. Mm, and um, I mean, you go into quite a lot of detail on your website about those uh, mm. different models. I was specifically interested in how you came to the conclusion that collective stewardship met, you know, eighty-eight percent of your sort of criteria. Could you just talk sure. about that for a moment? Well, we really felt it really mirrored First Nations principles here. You know that we instead of owning land, I mean, we think that own, land ownership is ethical on the ethical scale. Land ownership is, has, has caused a lot of problems. I mean, I read a book recently and this guy said that we, ha- we don't have archaeological evidence of war t- um, 10,000 years ago. So before we owned land, we got on peacefully to, to, the, mo- to the most part. Um, so on, eth- on the ethical grounds, it really, really stacks up. Obviously, because uh, our land, we've actually, you know, my, my partner and I, we could have actually put this into 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 our own name. We could have owned this, but we would always be the ten- the landlords and people coming would always be the, be the tenants, you know. That's not a relationship we want to build community. So we put this, uh, we, we loaned our money to the non-profit and the non-profit bought the land. 
um, and therefore we've actually taken this piece of land, this three and a half acre block in Maloney, off the speculative market forever. Um, and so we, instead of owning it, instead of, you know, instead of us owning it, the non-profit owns it. And the non-profits, you know, we have, we, we, yes, we are the, we run the non-profit, but that, that's only a short-term thing, just like the person that runs the lines doesn't own all the lines things and everything like this. Um, so if and, a 4 triple Z listener wanted to come and um, co-steward the land with you, how would the yes. money flow? Yes, so it's all about loaning. So we loan our money to the non-profit, and then the non-profit buys the land, and then over time, everybody pays a rent, or we, we don't like the word rent, but you know, a weekly contribution. And then, um, so it's a group of friends getting together and doing this. We can actually set one up in the middle of Brisbane, somewhere in, in Uluru, wherever, it doesn't matter. Um, or you can come and join us here. Um, and we, you know, if you've got some monies alone, great. If you don't, that's okay too. That this model sort of is able to cope with all types of, you know, different, different capacities, which is really, really important for us. Okay, so admit your ethical claims for, yeah. or your ethical criteria for all of that. Um, yeah. Can you just talk about the impact on the uh, closeness of the community, which is another one of your criteria? What is that criteria and how does that Absolutely. work under? Yeah, look, many many communities um, are actually not that close. You know, they, they sort of have their own places and we, we eat together every night. You know, even when there's the conflict going on, we break bread together and we we look each other in the eye and we have some fun. You know, so we really that that close that because we don't own it because we're not putting a stake out. You know, in a fence, we're not putting up a fence up and say this is mine, this is not you know, back off. Um, it really is. It, it works really, really well for the closeness of community, and I think that's what we're. That's one of the things we really need to tackle in our world today. Hi, Andrew. It's Dave here. Um, I was wondering about, specifically in your community, what does an average day look like? Uh, is it spent uh, toiling, tilling the fields? Is it uh, fixing plumbing? <laughs> well, no, not really. Like, um, you know, it's pretty relaxed here at the moment. Like, we, we try to do what we want to do. Uh, we try to wake up and go, okay, what, what is it that we feel to do sort of thing right now? So, so, you know, some people are working full-time, some people are working part-time, some people don't work at all or work outside the village at all. Um, so really, I mean, we because we only cook once a week, we're on a, on a roster for cooking, um, That I tell you, that never gets old. So we have a lot more time, we a lot more spare time than, than the average person commuting, you know, an hour or half an hour into, into work. So, so there's um, at least seven know, of you then if you're cooking one day a week? That's right. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's only there's about seven of us at the moment. Yeah, we'll only ever be a small community. Um, we figured that closeness needs to be small. Like it doesn't need to be big to be to be great, you know. So, you know, you get some communities that are 120 or or 400 big, and and they, you know, it's it's like a good suburb, really. Um, you know, and a lot of them look like, like suburban. We want to be like a good good family. Mm. <laughs> and how can people find out more about your eco village? Yeah, so just head on to ecovillages, plural, .com .au. Um, Also got a Facebook page. And uh, actually tonight we also, we actually have a, um, a, a webinar at 7 o'clock um, talking about these models and, what, and what, why we chose this one. So, you know, this is a short interview, but if you really want to find out more, then jump onto, onto the Facebook page and uh, find out the details and there's a, there's a link there. And so is the Facebook page Eco Villages. Eco Villages Australia. That's Eco right. Villages Australia. Well, right. thanks for appearing on Eco Radio this morning, Andrew, or this afternoon. Awesome. It is afternoon because we start at noon, so it must be afternoon because we've already started.
That's it. Andrew, thanks very much for that. And if you are interested, dear listener, head to Eco Villages. Hi, Alit. Uh, welcome to Eco Radio. Thanks for making the time to join us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, the reason I'm talking to you is because you lived in a tiny house. I just wanted to know first up why you did that. Um, so I guess I'd sort of been going through my sustainability journey for a few years and um, I'd come across what a lot of people probably come across is the YouTube channel called Living Big in a Tiny House and got um, binge-watched a few of those episodes and sort of got really inspired about people downsizing and reducing their footprint through the space that they live in. Um, and so what was so the whenever, attraction? Was it the reducing your footprint or...? Yeah, yeah. It was mostly just um, we were uh, looking mostly at reducing how much energy we produced, um, you know, how much the actual housing we lived in had impacted the planet when it was being built and how it had been built. And so that was what we were searching for when we ended up finding our little rental. And did that work? Yeah, I think... um, there was definitely some challenges when moving from, so we moved from a one bedroom apartment um, into the tiny house on a property. Um, so in terms of downsizing, like all our furnitures, we had to make sure we had, you know, things that were functional that could, you know, fold away if we needed to. Um, so there was sort of that element of needing to downsize, but it definitely worked and we were lucky that we sort of adapted quite quickly. And did it work from the point of view of reducing your energy consumption and the other things that you were hoping would come from downsizing? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, so the the property we lived on, the okay. property owners had solar panels installed, um, which pretty much took care of all of our energy. Um, and we were using a composting toilet, which was functional, um, <laughs> did the job. So, yeah, generally speaking, we, um, I would say that we've reduced our footprint quite considerably by living there. And what were the challenges? You mentioned there were some challenges. What were they? Yeah, I guess the biggest challenge for us um, was obviously that we hadn't built the space ourselves. So I think if you were looking to um, build your own tiny house, you definitely have the opportunity to create the space depending on how you want to use it, whereas we'd moved into... Some, something someone else had created. So, um, you know, the kitchen space was a little bit small and trying to, um, you know, have people over and cater for them was a little bit more difficult when we didn't have that amount of kitchen space that we would like if we built our own. And was there room to have people over? How did you organise guests? Yeah, so, I mean, sitting inside was a, pretty much a no-go. Um, our tiny little TV was situated right next to our, our bed in, in a loft, so that was sort of our only lounge little area. Um, we did have a fold-away dining table, which um, usually was covered sort of in my study stuff or my business things or some dirty dishes or washing to do. So that was very functional in terms of having people over. We were lucky to have quite a big deck that extended from the front door and looked out over the Queensland rainforest. So um, there was enough space there for people to sit and it was all covered. So usually it was pretty good to entertain. So entertaining outside is the secret to socialising in a tiny space. Yeah, I think that's the way to go.
Um, now, you said that the table was often covered in your study and work area. You were studying full-time, running a business, working with me on your life, your planet. Um, how did you manage to juggle all of that in the space? Was that a challenge? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm very much a person who needs to see something to actively take part in it. So usually if I had assignments that I was finishing, um, they'd be sort of strewn out across the little fold-away table in the small dining area. So um, a lot of the times my partner would get a little bit frustrated because it, the space can get messy quite quickly just with a few things laid out on the, the minimal space that we had to sort of put stuff. So, um, yeah, it was definitely a challenge getting all those things sort of working within a nice harmonious environment, but it worked and we, we definitely adapted very quickly to, you know, just accepting that, you know, some things were just going to stay there and, and we could just clean up a little bit more often if we needed to. Now, you mentioned that the disadvantage of renting was that you were using a space that someone else had designed. But it sounds like that was quite useful from the point of view of working out what you would do if you were going to build. Do you think that's Absolutely. would you recommend that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think if I was to recommend to others, um, if they were interested in living in a tiny house, I'd definitely say to try to get an experience of being in one, even just for a couple of nights. I know there's quite a few on Airbnb now available and a few other places. So um, just being able to experience that, it's given us insight into the different ways that we would optimise the space for ourselves personally and it would be different for every single person. So I think experiencing it first and then if we did get the opportunity to build our own, we have a lot more insight into those particular things that we would want. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for sharing that experience and that perspective with us today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. And here on 4ZZZ, you're listening to me, Jeff Ebbs, with Dave Whitfield on Eco Radio. Uh, we're talking about different housing models today, community housing. We've heard from Alette talking about uh, life in a tiny house and Andrew McLean from uh, Mullaney Eco Villages. Yeah, two different, uh, completely different models. And now we are joined by Kel O'Neill. Kel, are you with us? Yes, I am. I have a few technical hassles on this end, but I'm here now. Well, we, we're unaware of your technical hassles, so <laughs> don't feel free not to share them. Um, yes, Kel, okay. you've been involved in community housing for some time. We won't age you by telling the listener how many centuries. Um, but yes. the um, one of the challenges for community housing is that you're dealing with human beings and we fundamentally struggle to get on with each other. Yeah, I'd say that probably I spent 20 years in community housing in the 80s and then, um, you know, kind of institutional housing in, in the in the 2000s and so on and so forth. Is that there's two key aspects, I think. One is the people who are going to be housed or do the housing, for want of a better word, and organising the money. And that creates a huge host of um, interesting tensions and has um, great outcomes and that's a great outcome. So I suppose that's really the, you know, the driving, the two drivers that I've observed over quite a long time working in a whole range of different housing settings. So 
Now, looking yeah, at some of the intentional um, housing communities that I've been peripherally involved in, the way that they organise themselves and manage the kinds of challenges that inevitably arise when humans live together would appear to be the make it or break it um, part of the process. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Um, unless that's bedrock solid, um, you may as well um, cut your losses and, and leave the meeting early because unless that can be so solid and everyone understand exactly what's happening and how it's how it's happening and what their roles, responsibilities or task is ahead of them, then, then really it's not, you know, it, it's a waste of time and I've seen it happen quite a few times. I've seen some fantastic outcomes, but I've also seen it all end in tears over, you know, so how would you solidify it, someone who was setting out on the adventure of establishing a communal living arrangement? What kind of things do you think they should be looking at to try and get those that solid, as you say? I, I think they actually understand... I have to understand the nature of, 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 of what it is, and it is a lot of... Over varying lengths of time, some years, it, it's a long journey, um, and they have to take right from the start you've got to be in it for the long haul it's not going to happen overnight it's not a modern consumer thing you can't dial it up like a zoom conference you have to put in put in the yards and 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 you know make it work um the outcome is the result of everyone's efforts i suppose and i suppose on top of that you have to have models and experiences to guide you um it's not as if you know what we're doing here in southeast queensland now hasn't been done before uh, in Australia, uh, overseas, there are plenty of models to look at, and it was interesting to listen to Andrew earlier on about the eco villages model, which is you know a development that's happened here in Queensland. It's it's organic, it's responding to the different um, conditions and criteria here that, that that exist where we live now. But there's a large body of evidence that's, that that shows look you can do it a thousand different ways. It's up to you to develop it or to come on board with someone who has the experience to do that um so how important do you think shared values are i was speaking to one um person who was on their third project and they said look we're going to make this a vegan community not necessarily because i'm vegan or we think that veganism is the only way to create a better world but at least if everyone who comes on has a basic set of principles in common that inform a whole lot of aspects of their life, we're going to have less arguments about, you know, is a pet a good thing or uh, can I let my cat out at night? All of those things just become, you know, non-issues. Um, pivotal. It's, it's, it's the keystone of the, of the operation. That's what draws people together in, in the first place. I mean, sure, the need for a roof over your head is a pretty solid driver for that. But once you start drilling down into the actual mechanics of how we're going to do this, unless there's a shared common set of values agreed by everyone and, um, you know, and, and lived, then, again, you, you have, there's no cement to hold the project together. I suppose that's how I describe shared values, and they're, they're critical. Um, they're even more critical than finding the money to do the project because that's what drives it, that's what keeps it alive. And what about managing the people who are less inclined to you know, put out the garbage or whatever the issue of the day is? Sometimes it's very hard work. You've got to respond to, you know, a storm comes through and blows a whole lot of trees down. Everyone's got to roll up their sleeves and cut branches and someone doesn't feel like it so much. How do you deal with those kind of issues within the community? Um, it's got to be in the setup. 
um, in the establishment of the of the cooperative, the organisation, the, the managing entity, call it what you like. That's that's really where I think a lot of projects, particularly in early days in Australia in the 80s and 90s, where they often didn't understand how critical that is to the organisation and the organisation's livability and um, its ability to keep the project going. Unless they're there, there's no cement, there's no bonding um, for, for the operation. It's critical. And there's a whole lot of processes now which are much more readily available and people, I think, understand more. You can, in effect, almost get a template for how to do that. There are many, many different models around. Unless people go through that process of learning about responsibilities and uh, all that kind of stuff, um, then really they shouldn't be there. Um, you know, I was I was just wondering uh, what uh, with the future uh, climate change uh, effects happening, um, what are some of the uh, ways that the co-housing um, addresses that? Um, I, I think straight away, and you get back to that point of values, um, they might, you know, a shared value would be for a group such as you've just mentioned, would be, okay, we have, we're going to build or we're going to be involved in housing that recognises our shared value, i.e. climate change is going to happen. Um, there are going to be things that will affect the very fabric of the building that we're going to, that we're going to own or, or mm. develop or whatever. And um, my own example is on my house is 2.4 metres off the ground. Um, I know that's, a, you know that's a funny thing to say, but you know, all the electrics, everything in that house is above that 2.4 metre line. Yep. Um, I mean, I also live in a slightly flood-prone area in, in Brisbane, but I, I, I recognise that at the start, and whilst I won't be here to see those changes, they're definitely coming. Yeah. You know, everyone knows that, is understand. They can, the, the recently completed flood map of Brisbane, for example, updated and revised, it shows quite clearly what's going to happen to, your, to the piece of dirt you currently may live on in 20, 50 years' time. It's possibly going to be underwater. So, mm, well, we've just seen those one that. in a thousand year floods in Germany and China. <laughs> so, we can expect that uh, the flood map may even be stretched. Kel, are there any particular <laughs> projects that you would point the listener to um, at the I moment? Think, uh, a, a good place to start um, would be the Nightingale House model that's come out of Melbourne, um, which is a. So, that's Nightingale know, named after the bird? Uh, yes, Nightingale, yes, Nightingale Housing Projects, if you just Google that and just see what they're doing. I mean, they're looking at a, how, to, how to keep the cost down um, for housing, and they're looking at affordable housing models and so on and so forth. Mm, well, um, that could be a whole show in itself. It's a very interesting model, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, and like a lot of other people, and I've realised this myself, is that it's not about the building, it's not about the people to a certain degree, it's about how you get money. The Nightingale model is, from what I've been able to read, is really about how to finance your project and how to do that successfully outside of non-traditional uh, banking methods. All right, um, so well, we that, might that, have to that, come that, back and talk about that another day, Kel. Mm. Thanks very much yeah, for sure. appearing on Eco Radio this afternoon. Okay, Jeff, good to hear from you, and uh, we'll catch up soon.